Direct from our newsroom in Washington, in color, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. Officers also reportedly chased and fired on a radio-equipped car containing two white men. Dr. King was standing on the balcony. In 1968, on the night that Martin Luther King was assassinated, Dr. Shirley Jackson decided that she would pursue her graduate education at MIT. At that time, there were, I think, no more than 12 black students at MIT, grad and undergrad, all together. And they got together and organized the Black Student Union and lobbied MIT for bringing more black students on campus and Paul Gray, who would later become the president of MIT. And he was also a believer. He got assigned to work with that group and together MIT began recruiting. And so they recruited an initial class of, I think, some 40 plus students in 1969 for the class of 73. And that was the first significant presence of black students on campus. And then class 74, class 75 continued to be in numbers like that, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. There were 60 black students in my class. So I didn't really have any sense of MIT being a place that was particularly difficult for black students, but you know, the overall state of things in the country, you just kind of accept that, you know, there are going to be challenges. So that wasn't really on my mind at MIT. In fact, when I got to MIT, suddenly there are a bunch of black students who are nerds like me. And so I was very, very happy. You know, I went to MIT because my uncle recommended it. And then my mother told me that my father would have wanted to go to MIT. That was kind of the icing on the cake. Rockland Clark graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in physics from MIT in 1983 and continued working at MIT in the Information Systems Department for a number of years. His time at MIT was profoundly influential and shaped the rest of his life. Two of the most important relationships in Rockland's life started while he was there. One was with his wife, Eva, who will tell us her story in a moment. The other was with God. But the woman he mentioned first, Dr. Shirley Jackson, also deserves a moment to shine. Because Dr. Jackson was the first African-American woman to earn a doctorate at MIT in any field. That was in 1973. She was also the second African-American woman in the whole of the United States to earn a doctorate in physics. She went on to do many things, including serving for 23 years as president of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. She was the first woman and first African-American to hold this position. But it was her efforts at MIT that directly affected both Eva and Rockland, because to help the students succeed that she recruited to MIT, Dr. Jackson helped create a summer program called Project Interphase which was designed to provide academic support for incoming minority freshmen and acclimate them to MIT's academic life. It was this program that put Eva in Rockland's path. But before that happened, for either one of them, both Rockland and Eva had to suffer some losses that shaped their future paths in life. I'm Nathan Barzi of the Octet Collaborative, and this is Infinite Corridor, 
the podcast that tells the stories of faith in the lives past and present of the MIT community. My father died when I was two weeks old, and uh, I never really knew him. My mother kept his memory alive for me, but sometime when I was in fourth or fifth grade, I went down to the basement of the house we were living in at the time, and I saw these books, which I'd probably seen before, but decided to ask about them. And they were two calculus books, an elementary algebra book, book on differential equations, advanced calculus, trigonometry, and logarithm tables. And I asked my mother what those books were. And she said, well, those are your father's. And I said, I, I want to know this stuff. She said, oh, okay, well, you should probably talk to your uncle. And my uncle's a neurologist. So I went to Uncle Charlie and showed him the books and said, you know, what do I do? He said, well, start with elementary algebra. Then my uncle gave me sort of the order in which to do things. And so I think I did the trigonometry next. And then there was analytic geometry. And then I started doing the calculus. So I taught myself calculus in junior high. And, and that was my father's legacy. And so my uncle suggested that I should go to a Bronx High School of Science. And so I went to Bronx High School of Science. It was one of the three exam schools at the time. There's Brooklyn Tech, Stuyvesant, and Bronx Science. And then my uncle had also suggested that I should go to MIT. And so my father's books and Uncle Charlie's recommendations are kind of what directed me towards MIT. Connecting with my father was the on-ramp, and then, and then I enjoyed it. It was fun. And so I kept at it. Eva's career interests were also shaped by her childhood experiences. Like Rockland, she too lost her father at a young age. But it was the aftermath of his passing that shaped her perspective. Well, thinking about my childhood experience and my father's death had a significant impact with our family's dynamic. My father was in the Air Force when I was a girl, so... We traveled a bit. I was born in California, and then we were in Japan briefly, and then back in my parents' hometown in southern Illinois. But when my father died when I was seven, we relocated. So my mother was a widow with three little children, my sister, who's a year older than I am. And then I had a, a little brother who was severely handicapped. And she relocated us from Murfreesboro, Illinois to East St. Louis, Illinois, initially. And at that time, East St. Louis was considered by HUD to be the most troubled small city in the United States. And we witnessed businesses closing down. We witnessed an increase in crime in our community. And my mother, being a military widow, had some options I think that others may not have had. And so she relocated us from East St. Louis, Illinois, to the neighboring town of Belleville, where we were the first Black family to integrate our subdivision. So over the years, we would often travel from Belleville through East St. Louis on our way to St. Louis because we were St. Louis Cardinal fans, so we would often go to games. And we passed by our old house oftentimes on our way to St. Louis. So that house over time really became a symbol for me of neighborhood disinvestment because we noticed one year, oh, the shutters are falling off the house where it had been this 
modest but well-maintained community. We saw the signs of disinvestment and the rise in crime, and it was difficult for me as a child to reconcile why East St. Louis was spiraling down and the neighboring town of Belleville, literally next door, was prospering. And whereas East St. Louis was predominantly Black, Belleville was a predominantly white community. So the, the racial disparities were just very evident to me as a child. And it really spurred my interest in urban studies and planning, which is what I ultimately ended up studying at MIT. Eva's academic prowess was evident early on especially to her mother, a widow with three children, one of whom was severely handicapped. It was her motherly pride in Eva that even put MIT on the map for her. My introduction to MIT is really through my mother. When my father died and, and she suddenly had to support the family, she went to school to become an operating room technician. And actually, that was one of my fondest memories with my mom because she had to take algebra as part of her class curriculum. And she enlisted me as her tutor for herself and for her classmates. So that was a lot of fun for me. But as an operating room technician, she was in surgery one day and mentioned to the surgeon that her daughter really enjoyed and excelled in math and science. The doctor said, well, has she considered MIT? And we didn't know anything about MIT. So she came home and she said, the doctor said you should really consider MIT. And so I applied. And I will never forget the moment when I went to the mailbox and found that letter. I literally leaped in the air. I don't know how many feet I leaped in the air, but that was one of the most exciting moments of my life to get that letter of admission to MIT. Nearly a decade after Dr. Shirley Jackson launched Project Interphase at MIT, Eva arrived on campus to participate in this summer program. And two people were there who would shape the rest of her life. So I arrived on campus the summer before my freshman year. And there I was at East Campus. And I had my bags and I was walking towards the dormitory. I saw Rockland standing there in the doorway, and I thought, you look so handsome. <laughs> and he offered to come over to assist me with my bags. So he carried my bags for me, and I, I found out at that time that he was a tutor. Although we were the same age, he skipped a grade when he was a youngster. He was a year ahead of me, and was a tutor in Project Interface when I arrived on campus. About half of the Black students in my class had been in Project Interface and half hadn't. I applied to be a tutor over the summer. And so when I saw her coming with her bags, I figured as a tutor, I should help her out. Wasn't just being polite. Just being polite. <laughs> I was not trying to, to make a move, but uh, sure, she was very noticeable. And I was not her tutor, but I was a tutor, uh, a math tutor with the program. Yes. And I won't go into the details, but to make a long story short, I won a opportunity <laughs> Invite Rockland out on a date. So <laughs> so I invited him out on a date over the summer, and we had our first... It was a contest. It was a contest. It, it I won a contest. During a, and during uh, a as a result of winning that contest, I had an option to invite Rockland on a date. Or anyone. I could choose anybody. So I, I invited Rockland out on a date. Eventually. Which, eventually, right. <laughs> but that summer, 
Another incoming freshman to Project Interface was Courtney McBath, who is now a bishop and pastor of a huge church in Virginia. But at the time, he was just another incoming freshman, but a very devoted Christian. I was his tutor. Yes, and he witnessed to everybody about Jesus. We weren't believers when we first came to MIT. For me, it was a couple years later that I made a decision to, to follow Jesus. And that decision for me came on the heels of what were, for me, some really devastating and troubling experiences. One, some revelations about my father's death that were very disturbing to me came to light. My brother's health began to decline. I was experiencing academic difficulty. I had broken up with Rothman for the third time. <laughs> right, three times. And so I was really depressed and really sad. And as I said, Courtney had witnessed to me on a number of occasions. And so I reached out to him just for, for spiritual guidance and ultimately made a decision to follow Jesus. I called him on the phone to let him know that I was a Christian. And to my surprise, Rockland said, oh, I'm a Christian now too. And now you have to understand that up until this point, I had never heard him say anything about Jesus. So I said, oh, well, maybe you want to go to church with me. Oh, no, churches are full of hypocrites. So, you know, so I just decided to leave alone. Okay, I'll just see you when I see you. And to my surprise, I then learned later that he had gone to the Black Christian Fellowship on campus and given his testimony about how he was a follower of Jesus. And suddenly he was also witnessing to folks across the campus. Well, you know, I didn't grow up in church. I had experience in, in a summer camp I went to Trinity Parish Boys Camp run by Trinity Episcopal Church in Manhattan. And I was curious, but when I'd ask the priests questions about religion, they would give me kind of specific answers, but they didn't really give me a big picture of following Jesus. So my experience of coming to Jesus was very, very pointed and dramatic. I was by myself in my dorm room. God dealt with me. So I asked Jesus to be Lord of my life, and I was very determined to sort of give myself fully to this new life in Christ. But being on campus, I realized I had to deal with issues of science and faith. So Pastor Thompson and Courtney McBath, who was a mentor of mine, gave me material that helped me to sort of be able to explain in a credible way why I follow Jesus. So my, my understanding of science and faith kind of evolved over time. My initial focus was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But I began to see sort of a bigger picture that, you know, God made the whole universe and the science is a result of us exploring the universe that God created. And I want to make sure that we present the God who created everything in a way that is faithful to who he actually is so that people in various walks of life can understand that revelation and, and embrace it. 
I think in the same vein, because especially with Genesis, it's not meant to be an explanation of the material origins of the planet and of the world generally. There's no conflict between science and faith. And in fact, science, I think, enhances our faith because we have an opportunity to discover more fully just what God has done, you know, in the process of, of creation. So a science plays a, a key role in our ability to live fully in, in the purpose for which, you know, humankind was created, which is really reflecting God's glory. So it's a, a really thrilling time, you know, the first year for us in following Jesus. And we actually saw what we described as a mini revival on campus. We saw quite a few people, you know, come to the faith in the Lord. And many of us decided because of our connection to First Church of God and Pastor Thompson at that time to really stay in Boston. We didn't expect we were going to be here you know, all these years, but we, we really made a decision to stay in Boston to be part of the ministry here. Today, Rockland is the full-time pastor of Life Church in the Dorchester area of Boston. Eva is the executive pastor and also is a vice president and asset manager for Boston Financial Investment Management, a syndicator of investor equity in the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program, where she manages risk in a regional portfolio of multifamily properties. Those activities alone would be enough for most people, but the Clarks have a big vision for making a kingdom impact. I work for a real estate investment company that focused on affordable housing uh, development across the country. I work as an asset manager for a real estate investment firm. So that's my full-time job. And then I'm on the, the pastoral team for our church, Life Church, which actually we meet not too far from where we live, right here in, in Dorchester. We're volunteers with BSAP, which is Black Scholars and Professionals, which is a ministry of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And so we are engaged in prayer on a weekly basis with people across the country that are part of BSAP. And we help to support the work of InterVarsity on MIT's campus. I'm also on the K-12 STEM committee for Black alumni of MIT or BAMIT. And I'm developing an educational game company. So I have my first game, which is called Match and Rhyme. But essentially, years ago, I read an article about how rhyming helps to build phonemic awareness so individuals can understand how words sound and also phonics, so the relationship between the written word and how the words sound. And of course, those are building blocks for reading. So I thought, oh, it'd be so great to have a game because I like to combine education and fun or skill building and fun. And let's see, there's another partnership that our church has with some other churches in the community and other organizations to launch what's called Cobbin Square Can We Talk. And Reverend Liz Walker founded Can We Talk, and it's essentially a community response to trauma. So with our Cobbin Square Can We Talk, because we launched during COVID, we are just meeting on Zoom, but other can We Talks, and again, this is a model that's now being replicated across the country. Other Can We Talks meet in person on a weekly basis. So people come together, they have a meal, 
And then they have an opportunity to share whatever's on their heart. You know, so it might be something that's traumatic or that's painful, or it might be something that they're celebrating. But they have an opportunity to share that. And we as a community have an opportunity to listen to them. So part of the whole healing process is us really sharing and listening to one another. And in that way, affirming our experiences and forging these connections with one another. So that's been a real gift to me as well over the past two years to be involved in Can We Talk? But that's not all. There's more. The Clarks have a new initiative in the works, the MIT Christian Alumni Network, or MIT CAN. The MIT Christian Alumni Network is a alumni affinity group still in formation. But we're really excited about the opportunity for Christian alums to come to, together, provide programming that's of interest, to provide networking opportunities, and to provide an opportunity to strengthen Christians once they leave campus. That was actually a recent comment that we received from someone who attended one of our webinars that they benefited so tremendously from campus ministry and the fellowship and the support when they were a student, but they found that a number of their peers after graduation didn't get the type of connection to a local church, uh, to a body of believers that will allow them to continue to grow in their faith. So we want to provide an opportunity for Christians to continue to be strengthened in following Jesus after graduation. And who better to illustrate and support the truth that faith and science are absolutely compatible than individuals from MIT that are scientists and engineers and are believers in Jesus to demonstrate that and to tackle some of the pressing issues of our day. You think about some of the innovations, you know, the chat GPT, you think about climate change, you think about all of the things that we have to wrestle with. So we can bring a biblical perspective, we can bring a biblical ethic to those issues. So I'm eager for us to come together and have conversation and really to be influential in our world. We opened this episode of Infinite Corridor with a news report from a tumultuous moment in American history. Some today feel like we're in an equally tumultuous moment. Rockland and Eva recognize that tension, but also have an important perspective about disciple-making and living as family in Christ to bring greater flourishing to more communities. Yeah, I think keeping your eye on Jesus is very relevant to policy decisions because when you actually look at what Jesus said and did, how he treated people, how he prioritized the poor, Jesus' approach was making disciples. So he sees in Matthew chapter 9 that people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his vineyard. Jesus never abandons discipleship as his primary way of addressing the problems that his community faces and the larger world faces. But the disciples that he's producing are disciples that are disciples formed out of the view that Jesus is the culmination, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. So the view of justice that you see in the Old Testament 
is incorporated into the Jesus who we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so disciples of Jesus are disciples who love justice. So as an example, there used to be a Greater Boston Pastors Prayer Summit that I would participate in. It ended several years ago, but this was an event that would happen once or twice a year, a retreat. And there's a pastor there, a white evangelical pastor, who typically had policy positions that reflected conservative evangelical sort of policy positions. So I would always choose him as a community partner because I thought it was important that we connected together when we did sort of group communion. So at one point he said to me, no, I don't see what's wrong with having voter ID. I said, well, I'm not opposed to voter ID in principle, but if the conditions make it difficult for people who are entitled to vote to get the ID, if you're not making those resources available, that's a problem. I said, but basically I expect you as my brother when you propose something, if I say ouch, I expect you to pay attention and see why I'm saying ouch. And I think that applies to broader public policy issues. I will give people the benefit of the doubt that in the policy proposals, they're well-intentioned. But often there are problems with those proposals that the person proposing them may not see because of their perspective, and they need the perspective of others which means that America needs the leadership of all of the body of Christ and can't just rely on the leadership of people of European descent. So there's an important role for us to play in helping to define what America is. When public policy decisions are championed by evangelicals who refuse to recognize the calling for everybody to participate and recognize the flaws in the system that perpetuate inequalities over time, that's problematic because the God of the Bible doesn't operate that way. And so focusing on Jesus changes how you interact with people. It changes how you look at the landscape of your community. Disciples are people who can go where the pain is, stay, humbly listen and learn from the people in pain, and then channel God's love and resources into addressing the problems that people face. And so those are the kinds of disciples that I want to produce because I want to see the gospel make a difference in the lives of everybody. So being a disciple, following Jesus means making policy decisions that reflect the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not a fictionalized Jesus who's a champion of the American Declaration of Independence and Constitution, as significant as those documents are. Jesus gives us no tools with which to coerce the public. He gives us the message and the spirit, and that's it. And in 300 years, the church turned the Roman Empire upside down. Many of us have abandoned our actual faith in the gospel. We're no longer making disciples. We are now relying on the tools of public policy to attempt to implement the kingdom of God. It's a tragic mistake. It always leads to problems. And if we don't repent, we are going to reap the whirlwind. There will be deeper, deeper problems as a result. I'm Nathan Barzi, and this is the Infinite Corridor podcast a production of the Octet Collaborative, a Christian study center serving MIT. This episode was recorded 
written, and edited by Carolyn McCulley. And like everything we do, it was made possible by the financial support of generous individual and organizational donors. To learn more about the Octet Collaborative, visit us at octetcollaborative.org. That's O-C-T-E-T collaborative.org. Thanks for listening.